As we continue our sermon series called Hope in the Wilderness, last week we looked at our greatest need. Today, as we very clearly saw in Exodus 32, our greatest problem, which is something that Martin Luther defined as our original sin. Our original sin, the sin that we inherited from our first father, Adam, and our first mother, Eve, and goes from generation to generation, person to person. It's the part of us that no matter how hard we try and, and we think, I'm never going to do this, we find ourselves doing those things. It's a part of our nature that we can't seem to shake. The things we keep finding ourselves doing, this is what we're talking about, our greatest problem, our sin. In Exodus 32, this is really a remarkable text. Uh, perhaps you heard Pastor Abel reading this, and you're thinking in the back of your mind just a little bit, did this really happen? Could the Israelites forget so quickly? And could they really truly dismiss the one true God so quickly? These are the same people that just a few months later walked through a sea of welled-up water, and they saw the ten plagues. And they saw God provide food, manna from heaven, McDonald's from heaven. And they saw water rushing from a rock. They saw all these miracles, miracles that we would, we, some of us, would, if we just saw one of those, our faith would be stronger, we say to ourselves. The absolute, raw, terrifying power of God, they see it, and so quickly they turn from him. The question is, that we're going to ask ourselves, is why? And we see this very first verse, uh, the first thing we see is that the people saw that Moses was delayed in coming from the mountain. Again, 40 days, 40 nights, he's away, and this delay is what finally puts them over the top. They lose their patience. So they go to Aaron, and they say, get up, make us gods, plural, pay attention to this, make us gods that shall go before us for this Moses, the man who led us out of Egypt. We have no idea where he's at. He's gone. He's Kaputs. And Aaron seems very uncharacteristic of a leader. Uh, Aaron is the same one who walked shoulder to shoulder with Moses. He stood up to Pharaoh. Uh, he had great faith at certain points of his life. He has great courage. But here he seems to falter. For he says to them, give me all your gold and your earrings and your noses. Give me all the gold. Uh, what scholars think happened is that there was actually a uh, idol made of wood first he crafted it out of wood and they take the gold they melt it they put it all over this idol it says that he took an engraving tool and he carved out the shape and the eyes and the mouth and and the posterior and he makes this golden calf but notice it is just a singular object of worship it's one golden calf or one golden bull but then verse four the people see this singular calf and notice what they say these are your gods, O Israel. Again, plural. What's going on here? Moses clearly makes one object of worship, but the people see the calf and they say, these are your gods. Very likely what's going on in the hearts of the Israelites is that in that time there was a, a god that in Egypt was the same as Mesopotamia and in Canaan, the land they were going to take over. It was a fertility god in the shape of a calf or a bull. And what the people believed is that this particular God was the one that you would go to when you wanted it to rain, when you wanted good crops, when you were worried about your economic situation, when you wanted to have kids or children or get married. You would worship in front of this fertility God, this bull or this calf, and that God would then, according to that faith system, give you the things that you needed based on your worship, based on your actions, based on what you did. 
And so when they're saying gods, they're now reintroducing pluralism into the life of Israel. They're saying, look, if you want to worship Yahweh, that's fine. You can worship Yahweh all you want, but we're going to worship this fertility God. And now there's not just one true God, there's many. Now Aaron sees this, verse 5, and many translations, because the Hebrew word is difficult, say that when he saw this, he was afraid. Who is he afraid of? <laughs> well, on one hand, he's afraid of the people. He's clearly listening to what the people's will is, and he's doing what they said. But you've got to believe he's also afraid of Yahweh. And I would imagine that then uh, when he says, tomorrow we're going to have this feast, notice this, this is a really smart stall tactic. He's like, let's just put this festival off till tomorrow, think it over. Goes home, I would imagine his prayers were something like this, oh, dear God, please have Moses come home right now. Dear God, please don't leave me by myself. Please, God, where is my brother? Send him back to me. Moses doesn't show up. Verse 6, see how eager the people are to worship this false god? It says that they uh, basically set their alarm clock and they rose up early and they offered burnt offerings and they offered peace offerings. This, this is the killing of an animal, a a calf, a lamb, uh, sliced it open. Uh, they dedicated some on the altar to these gods, to this false god, but the others, they then cooked it up. They had a big, bar big barbecue. It says that they fed their bellies, they ate, they drank. Uh, this is wine, this is mead. But then it says that they got up to play. It's an interesting Hebrew word. It's essentially a euphemism for immoral behavior. Think frat party that you don't want your kids to go to. They're eating, they're drinking, they're playing to a false god that was just made by the hands of a man named Aaron. Now again, we have to ask ourselves, how could the people do this? I mean, what gave them the idea that a god created by human hands was going to be more powerful than the god of Israel who did all these things that they've already seen? Well, the answer is really in something that we have in our own hearts. It's the reason, in fact, that we all have sinned from time to time. It is because of impatience and discontentment. It's a result of our impatience and our discontentment with the timing of God or the blessings of God. And God says, look, I want you to live this way. I want you to do this for me. I want you to, to be set aside as a believer, as a Christian. And we say, yes, God, I will follow you. But then what happens? We might pray for something and we grow impatient with God. We might look at our surroundings. We might look at what we have and what we don't have. We can grow discontent with God. And before you know it, we can find ourselves in this exact same situation where we're carving out for ourselves an idol, making God fit into our framework, making God fit into our timeline and taking or trying to take control. It's really a false sense of control. What the Israelites were doing is basically saying, look, we're tired of waiting for God. We're going to make this work our way, and we're going to fashion for ourselves a new God, a new leader, and he is going to be someone that we can essentially manipulate through our actions and through our worship. That's what's going on. But then the Lord finds out. Jump with me to verse 7. The Lord said to Moses, go down, and notice this next couple of words here, for your people, whom you brought out of Egypt, 
have fallen away from me. What is, he's disassociating himself from these people. He's washing his hands of them. He's like, Moses, you take the key, get in the bus, and get these people out of here. I am done with them. They're no longer my people. Why are they no longer your people? Well, he says, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land, you, land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. And this word corrupted really has to do with their inner heart, their inner self. This is about their soul or their spirit. This is about their identity, who they are, beloved children of God, a holy nation. It says that they have been corrupted. It means that their, not just their mind has been warped, but their very soul, their spirit is broken. It's diseased and I was thinking about a computer that I had. I tried to make this computer last as long as I could until finally, if you have an Apple product, you've probably seen the, the, I call it the wheel of death just spinning on the screen. The hard drive has become corrupted. It's worthless at this point in time. This is the strong language God is using. Their mind and their soul, their entire being is corrupt. And then verse 8, we can learn something so powerful about the type of relationship that God wants with us. He says to Moses, they have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. Now this is important. He says they have turned away quickly out of the way that I have commanded them. He doesn't say they have turned quickly from me, from this being of God, from, from the central nature of God, his love. He doesn't say that. He says, instead, they have turned away from the ways I have commanded them, which is where we can learn something about our relationship with God that's very important. This is, this is a warning. Because the whole of Scripture says this, to love God is to love his ways. And to love his ways is to love God. To love God is to love his ways, to love his commands, to love the way he's designed us, to love the way he tells us to live into this world. To love God is to love his ways, to love his ways is to love God. And when we take something like scripture, the way in which we can get to know God in the first place, and we say, well, I love God, but I don't love the way he is teaching me to live this way, so I'm just going to forget about this thing, I'm going to forget about that, and we reject some of his ways or all of his ways, we don't actually have love in our heart for God. What we have done is the exact same thing that the Israelites have done. We have carved God into our own image. We've made God fit into the way in which we want God to operate in this world. We have tried to take control of God and his ways. We have fashioned for ourselves an idol. This is idolatry. And so God is angry. But then what happens next is admittedly one of the most debated parts of the Old Testament. Theologians argue over this. Rabbis argue over this. Pastors argue over this. It appears at first glance, does it not, that Moses changes God's mind. And that brings up for us all sorts of questions. Well, wait a minute, I thought, well, what is this about free will? And I thought God is omniscient. And, and how is Moses changing God's mind? Well, guess what? I'm not going to go there this morning. <laughs> I'll tell you what, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, come back next week a little bit early, 9.30. Uh, we've got Bible studies for you. That's where we'll work out this complex theological problem, okay? We're not going to go there. But the good news is we don't have to go there because as Christians, if you are a Christian here in the room today, we can filter the entire Old Testament through the lens of the cross. 
We have Jesus. We have his death. We have his resurrection. We can filter the entire Old Testament through the lens of the cross. And what we see here is happening. The reason God allows this conversation to take place is because what we see in Moses is one who would intervene on behalf of broken, messy, sinful people. What we have in Moses is an advocate who would stand in the gap between people who do not deserve God's grace, who have time and time again rejected him, who have just broken, messy lives. And Moses says, God, have mercy on them. He's an advocate. Which, of course, might remind you of another advocate that you have heard of before. One who we call a greater Moses. The one man named Jesus who stood in the gap for us on a permanent basis, who was nailed to the cross and whose sin, all of our sin, every collective person in this room and persons of all time, that sin was nailed to Jesus, enmeshed with Jesus, died with Jesus. That is what it means that he is our advocate. So that when we turn to Jesus and we ask him for forgiveness, it's there, it's ours. The shame can be gone. The guilt can be gone the second we turn. This is what it means that Jesus is our advocate. He is a greater Moses. And so with that, let's close by looking at Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 8. Now, Jesus is essentially teaching on this exact same thing. And notice the question that he first asked the disciples. It's an identity question. He says, who do you say, or who do the people say that I am? And one of them speaks up and says, well, I've heard that they think that you're Elijah. I've heard that they think that you're John the Baptist. Another one says, yeah, no, it's kind of this prophetic thing. They think that you're one of the prophets of old. And Jesus hears that, and he says, well, what about you? You've seen my miracles. You've heard my teachings. Who do you say that I am? What is my identity according to you? Peter, very boldly, with great faith, says, you are the Christ. Now, we know from Matthew's gospel that this is an actual uh, coming-to-faith moment for Peter. There is no doubt that he, by the Holy Spirit, uh, knew, he, he knew this. He understood who Jesus was as the Christ. The problem for Peter was that he didn't understand how he would actually become the Christ. He didn't understand how Jesus would be our Messiah. He saw in part, but not in full. And so Jesus teaches, and it says here that he taught them very plainly. This means no hyperbole, no parable. He teaches just plain, big boy language. And he says the Messiah has to die, the Messiah has to suffer, the Messiah has to be rejected. This is what it means to be the Christ. And what does Peter do? He actually treats Jesus like a little child. He pulls him aside. You know, Peter's going to tell the Messiah, he's going to tell the Christ what's up. And he says, no, Jesus... This is not how the Messiah thing works. Messiahs don't bleed. Saviors don't die. They're powerful. Jesus, you're not going to do this. And then Jesus turns a table on Peter. What does he do? He rebukes him right back. And here's why. Because what Peter was doing was the exact same thing the Israelites were doing centuries ago. Peter is trying to make Jesus fit into his image of who God should be. Peter is crafting for himself an idol of what the Messiah should be, of what God should be. And he's saying, no, Jesus, you're going to fit into my box. You're going to fit into my understanding. And what he's doing, again, it's this principle. If you love God, you love his ways. Peter didn't love Jesus' ways. 
So Jesus looks at him very sternly. He rebukes him publicly. And he gathers everybody around. So this is the 12 disciples plus a larger crowd. He sits them down. He goes, let me teach you about the Messiah. He says, if anyone would come after me, this is verse 34, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And at first reading, you, you read this, and uh, this is a law-heavy verse because maybe you think in your own mind, well, I don't know if I am really picking up my cross. I don't know if I am following him very well. Certainly some days I do, but other days I don't. You know, Jesus, how do I follow you this way? It's hard to be a disciple in this culture. But then he teaches what he means. Verse 35. For whoever would save his life, and underline that word, we're going to come back to that. This is very important. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And this is where we have to do a little bit of a deeper dive into the original language, into the context in which Jesus is speaking. This is the Greek language, and in Greek and Roman thought, in Greek and Roman language, there's actually three different words for life, the one in which we call a human being or human life in English. The first one, you can see an example of it in John 1, chapter 4, is a Greek word, zoe. And the best way to describe that is a complete whole person. It is the physical flesh that you can see, touch, and feel, and it is your spirit. It's everything about you, physical and spiritual. Jesus does not use that word here, zoe. There's another word that means purely physical body. That's bios. That's where we get the word biology from, your biological self, the parts that make you a human being. It is void, though, of spirit. So oftentimes they would use this word talking about a body that's dead in the ground. It's his bios. It's his decaying body, the bios. But Jesus doesn't use that word. Instead, Jesus used the third word for life in Greek culture, in the Greek language, psyche, or we might say it in English, psyche, and maybe you heard, hear the word in there, psychology. This is your spiritual self. This is your spirit. This is your soul. This is what makes up your identity. This is the part of you that when you go home today and you look in the mirror, you either say, boy, I look really good, or I don't like the way I look. You're building an identity. This is your psychology. This is the part of you when you get a job and you get promotion, you feel pretty good about yourself, or you lose a job and you, you lose the promotion, you feel pretty poorly about yourself. It's the part of you that can fall in love. It's the part of you that as you think about your life and the things that you've accomplished and the hopes and dreams that you have, you can so easily build an identity upon this that if you do good, you feel good about yourself. If you do poorly, you feel bad about yourself. This is your psyche. This is your, what goes on in your mind. This is, in a Christian sense, your soul and your spirit. And so what Jesus is saying here, if we replace the English word with the original language, for whoever would save his soul will lose it, but whoever loses his soul for my sake and the gospels will save it. The natural question that we have to ask ourselves is, well, how in the world do I gain my soul? How in the world do I lose my soul? What Jesus is saying is really connected to your identity. If you believe falsely that there are some things that you can do to have your life turn out perfectly, 
that there are some things connected to the material world that you can do that is going to make you feel fulfilled, give you more joy, give you more happiness, give you more peace. What you're really doing is grasping for straws. You are not building your foundation on the right thing. In fact, he says it even later that if you gain the whole world, you will actually forfeit your soul, or you could. The material world will never fill the desires of your heart, Jesus is saying. The only thing that will fill the desires of your heart, of your soul, of your psyche, is Jesus and the gospel message. What's the gospel message? Well, there's another place where Jesus talks about his spirit, or the disciples talk about his spirit. It's on the cross, and if you remember, it's John 19:30 or 20, verse 30. And John's looking up at his friend. He's looking up at his Savior. He has been pierced in his side. And John records it like this, that Jesus took his final breath and he gave up his spirit. And if we're struggling today with identity, if you're struggling with who you are, if you're wrestling with sin, if you are struggling with, with the guilt and the shame that can come with being in the wilderness of what sin can do to our heart and building a false, foundation, a, a false foundation, Jesus would say to you today, enough! The victory has already happened. And you can turn to the one who gave up his spirit, who gave up his control and power and glory and riches, everything that we strive for in this world to try to create meaning for ourselves. Jesus had it and he let it go so that this very day you could experience true peace. So on your worst day, you would have someone that you can turn to and lean on to find hope, love, acceptance. It's your Savior, Jesus, who offers himself to you today in such a personal, intimate way and says, come home. Let your soul, let your spirit rest in me. And it's in the name of Jesus, died and risen for you that we say together, Amen.